Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hi, welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam. This is the podcast called Gatekeeper that you're listening to right now that you love so much. Happy 2017. This is the second episode being released this year, but the first one recorded in a year that's going to be so full of surprises and excitement and maybe weird, scary world wars. But we will see what happens on that front as the year unfolds. Isn't that how the world works? I am giving this very organic uh, stream of consciousness opening because the guest that we are about to get into begs for that, really. Uh, We had a wonderful conversation. Uh, His name is Ptolemy Slocum, and you know him from Westworld, this great new show, I believe, on HBO, which is the Home Box Office on your cable network. There's also a thing called Home Box Office Go on your streaming service of choice uh, that could be your laptop or tablet or desktop do they still make desktops i don't know anyway Ptolemy slocum is in westworld check it out he's also the director of the nerdist improv school uh, which opened a couple years ago it's a thriving improv program here in la located at nerd melt another great room here in los angeles to hone your skills as an improviser and performer and put on great shows, etc. Ptolemy is an old friend, and I brought him on to talk about his role at the Nerdist School and talk about the gatekeepers he's faced in his career as an actor and an improviser. But the conversation took a turn and got very real, and I really appreciate that Ptolemy was very earnest in talking about his own life and struggles, and we went to some really awesome places. Of course, I attempted on several occasions to bring levity with an ill-timed joke, Uh, I don't know if ill-timed is even a word, but like my jokes, not knowing if they will work or not has never stopped me. And despite some of my failed attempts at making funny, it's a really inspiring episode, and I think any artist will get a lot out of it. So with no further ado, please enjoy this conversation between me and the great Ptolemy Slocum. Andrew, do you mind holding the door open for me? What door? Oh, the door right here. It doesn't look like anything to me. I've been told that the little skit that I've been invited to partake in is a reference to Westworld. So for all of you out there that are watching that show, maybe you got a chuckle out of it. I would argue that it's another example of trying to shoehorn a a joke, especially one with references you wouldn't know, uh, it just wasn't going to work. But anyways, I don't know about the robots in this Westworld uh, world, but I do know another robot I love so much, Adbot. Hey, Jimmy, how you doing? I didn't think that you were going to have me on this episode. Oh, I'm not. We don't have time to talk to you today, Adbot. Uh, okay. So enjoy this episode uh, with Ptolemy Slocum. This is Gatekeeper. Hi, my name is Jimmy Flam. And welcome to Gatekeeper. I would, I would, keep this rolling. Just keep this rolling. This is, uh, this is. Here we go. We're going back. We're going back. Let's let's loop it back. And I'm excited to have with me on Gatekeeper today 
a man that you are going to fall in love with the same way wow. I have and much of America has, as well as international countries. <laughs> Put your hands together for the juice-sipping Ptolemy Slocum. Get out of here, Ptolemy! Defense. Um, hey, how you doing? I'm really good. How good. are you? I'm good. I I preempted your how are you. I just went right into good. Um, I'm very good. I didn't know I was international, although I was born in Africa, so I guess that half counts. Where, where, you were born in Africa? Yeah, I was born in Kenya. Really? Mm-hmm. Explain. Uh, well, I mean, it's Africa. Uh, my... <laughs> Uh, my father was African, uh, building a fertilizer plant for the Kenyan government, and that went badly, and so uh, we got kicked out of the country and uh, came back. But I was born over there. What went wrong with this? so many things? God, I should never bring this up because it is <laughs> such a dark story. Uh, we can just I know why skip over I, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's bad. It's uh, does it involve any gatekeepers? No, Any I, decision makers in the comedy world in this? Uh, not in the comedy point? world, no. It's more of like um, um, oil, big oil, big chemical companies um, stealing money from the Kenyan government. Oh, well, the Kenyan government would be the gatekeeper in this scenario. Yeah. And you were not given a thumbs up. <laughs> no, 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 no. We almost got killed. But um, I guess uh, that's comedy. There, yeah, there was a comedy moment I can tell you from before I was uh, alive enough to uh, remember it. But um, we were arrested in um, Mombasa. You were a baby. I was a baby with c- cuffs on a baby. Baby cuffs? No, 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 no. Um, they separated the men and the women into two different cars. Drove us back to Nairobi, where our house was, and um, there was a gun and there was a radio. Both were contraband at that time. Uh, this is in the seventies in Kenya. And my mother and her sister were, uh, her sister was visiting my aunt and they're in the back of this car and they're like, how do we, um, make plans for like where to hide things when we get home? And they're sitting in the back of these two big guys and they speak English and, uh, Kenyan and, uh, I think like, um, some kind of other, like they have, they're multilingual because of the area. And so they look at each other and they're like, um, my mother and her sister and she's like, uh, Igpe Atenlei. And they started speaking pig Latin to each other in the back of this car because that's the only language they could get away with. Got back to our house and they like literally hid the gun under my sister while she was sleeping, like under one of the children. And they were like, they basically hid everything under kids. Um, So that's kind of a comedy story. Is that a comedy story? You've made it a comedy story. Yeah, it's kind of funny. The gun under the child. It is funny that pig Latin can save your life. That's the comedy. That's the... yeah. Um, well, that's fascinating. And so you then you moved to America? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then it was Cincinnati. And then um, uh, my parents split up due to, um, I assume, just sheer level of stress and insanity. And then uh, I grew up in Northern California, in this like um, shitty little farming area in Central California. I don't think I knew that. And then you went to college presumably yeah yeah i tried to get away you like it was bad it's a little town called lodi it's like between sacramento and stockton that, which is referenced in cb4 a chris rock movie oh is it by the time i get to lodi i think oh yeah you cb4 deep cut fans out there <laughs> tell me if i'm right or wrong i mean they're going off right now um yes yeah, so it's, it's like a little town in the middle of nowhere and it's a suburb of nothing and it's just like farms and then this these little like towns um 
and I really wanted to get out of there. So I went to college in DC, like just as far away as humanly possible. And then I went up to uh, New York as soon as I got out of there. And I always felt like I was like a uh, born a New Yorker. Uh, it really, I don't know. I, it was, I didn't really want to come back to California at all for the most part, but my wife uh, didn't want to raise kids in New York. At what point did you, did comedy enter the equation? Um, in college, um, I was always a kind of a. I'm assuming you went to Georgetown. Yes, yes, the only you would assume that. <laughs> uh, you would assume that, but no. Uh, I went to George Washington University for the people that couldn't get into Georgetown. Um, it's just like a purchased university, or at least it was at that time. Uh, so yeah, that's it's a little bit more downtown. But I have friends from uh, Georgetown. That's uh, how I know. Dikembe like, Mutombo, Berbiglia, um, uh, Mike Berbiglia. Nick Kroll, um, Mulaney, John Mulaney, all those, all those guys were um, around the same era, uh, one university over. So it was, it was only like, you know, 15 minutes away. Um, and I started doing sketch there, sketch comedy. We did uh, two hours every night we rehearsed, Monday through Friday. We did a new show every Friday. Wow. And that is the entirety of my learning experience. More so than college, more so than I, I ended up like dropping out of college. Uh, but that taught me everything that I am just doing the work, just writing and every day, just trying to come up with something for the end of the week. I cannot uh, suggest a better teacher than yourself plus deadlines. That's great. We're already into inspiring mode. Oh, yes. If you weren't already inspired by your history. Um, in Africa to Cincinnati. <laughs> um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Huh. I mean, Boy, I think we all get, get it. Deadlines and yeah, pushing yourself. Um, yeah, if you want to deal... I mean, it depends on which area you want to deal with um, of my life because they all have different lessons. And this early area has a lot of work and it has a lot of... Um, psychological impacts for young people that are going into this thing. Um, I think a lot of us were running ourselves too hard. And so we rehearsed every night for two hours. Um, we would do short formy kind of improv as commercials, but it was mostly sketch. So we would write a brand new sketch show every Friday and then, um, do improv as kind of, you know, like interstitial stuff just to pad out time. And it was a lot. And I was coming up with so many things and working so hard. And eventually, if you keep asking for yourself, you'll get it. And so we developed an own se- our own sense of like voice and sketch and um, things of that nature. But I think the stress that I put myself under, uh, plus kind of that time period, like several of us went full on crazy. Mm. Like um, institutionalized crazy. Oh shit. Yeah. Including you. Uh huh. <laughs> Dive in. Yep. So, uh, so this time period that we're talking about is, um, marked by possibly the most creative that I was, but also the most destructive. Uh, and I think, I don't, I don't know how far, how far do you want to go into this? I don't. I didn't know we were gonna get to this. Yeah. Uh, anytime you talk to me, it'll go way too fast. Way, way too far. Way too fast. Um, I thought I knew you. Yeah. 
Well, you do know me. You know, you know a version of me. But I basically, um, well, all right. So let me. Do you mind going? Do you want to go into this thing, or is it too like dark? Or fuck it. Um, my opinion is, uh, there's a there's a form of fishing with creativity, and that is going into the unknown and bringing something back. So you kind of enter chaos and you're retrieving something from it, something that doesn't exist. The further you put yourself out there, the further into chaos you go. Uh, and I feel like we really started pushing ourselves. And so now you get this creative sense of like, I don't want to do things I've seen before. At first it was um, like I would do standard sketches. One of my favorite was uh, Freud Family. If uh, you imagine what Freud's family was like to come up with all those concepts. So yeah, one of his brothers was very oral oriented and like the father was sleeping with the daughters and the mother and like all this. It was just like your standard sketch stuff. But by the end, it was uh, almost like guttural sounds and almost clownish. And it, it, it came out of um, uh, just our own concepts of, uh, of like the base of humor. And it became very personal and it just keep driving yourself. And I think the further, the more often you're touching the unknown, the the more careful you need to be with yourself. This is just my experience. Uh, that combined with stress, the stress of college, the stress of um, your own sense of self and of uh, success on the outside world. And with those things, if you're, I just feel like there was a, um, this veil that started to dissipate in which I started seeing things. I was running my brain too much. I stopped sleeping. Um, uh, this thing where you have consistent characters that keep showing up and are talking to you, but they seem like realistic, almost in like a beautiful mind type situation. Uh, and then I would start walking and obsessing about things and then I would just black out and I would come to hours later somewhere else in the city and it was kind of dangerous. Yeah. Was, was there any drugs? Never. Never. I never did drugs. I never smoked pot. Uh, I didn't really even drink very much. Yeah. Uh, I think some of the reason why I never did any of those things, because uh, as we're starting to notice already, my brain was already pretty fragile. And I think I was like kind of aware No, I of think that. it's probably a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> probably a good call. Yeah. And but we were doing shows for like 500 people. Like we had moved from a black box into a, an auditorium, the auditorium of the space. Like it was, it was pretty successful, pretty intense. I'd started as a um, kind of almost Jim Carrey style, like um, big humor. And I accidentally um, ran across honesty on stage and I got obsessed with it. Uh, and so my style was changing. Like it was, it was kind of artistic and interesting. But it was also too much. And so by my senior year, like halfway, like three months into my senior year, I I was becoming pretty dangerous and dropped out of school. And I was in a um, back in California, in central California, back in a um, I was in an institution for like two weeks. How was that? It's interesting. Um, I mean, is that like self? Yeah. Diagnosed? Uh, well, like this needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so two weeks, I'm sure there was some comedy there. Or no. <laughs> I mean, are you, <laughs> the man, are you looking to have a funny podcast? Because this is not it. <laughs> um, there was uh, there was some consistencies with um, people having sex with angels. If There's almost like a motif in, of among crazy people. Because I just started talking to people. I was interested. It was half AA and half um, just like psychological issues. I learned more from the AA side of process and how the brain works than I did from 
the Angel. psychological meetings because we would have big meetings with everyone and then we would have like other meetings with people that you, with the substance abuse was one side and um, psychological issues were the other. But I just sat and talked to people and there's a pretty consistent thing in which they believe they're either, either having sex with angels or the devil or something. It's, it's you know, your brain creates these narratives for you and they're pretty grandiose um, and they're pretty intense. Uh, so eventually I got out of there and I was afraid of sketch for a long time and I still was. And this is where I like got more into improv ultimately because it protected me from that form of creativity. And so, um, a lot of my life has been in improv, but I really actually came out of, uh, sketch. Like my relationship to myself came from sketch. But these are all like, this is like 21, 22. Yeah. 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 19 to 19. It's so young to be already exploring the, these themes of self, at least in my oh, yeah? life, like I'm just starting to figure this stuff out. But to think of someone that young that's trying to talking in an almost Carlos Castanadian, uh, to throw a reference out there. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that we there's an element of this uh, that there's an anxiety we build for ourselves, even as comedians, that I think comes from uh, us at 10 to 13, and that is what is success. And um, how would we define it? A lot of it comes from the outside world. It comes from the vantage point of a child. And it doesn't go away because it comes around the same time that we identify with ourselves. And so we hold ourselves to this standard. And I think it really starts to hit uh, around this early 20s thing where you start to feel, oh, I'm a failure. I'm going to be a failure. And a lot of that anxiety starts building up from a vantage point of success that happens outside of you. And that's that vantage point of success comes from when you were a child, mm. you know, 10 to 13. Like, everyone's going to love me. I'm going to have, like, a beautiful wife. I'm going to I'm gonna like be the, the king of industry. Uh, so I'll, I will have, you know, the love of people. I will have lots of money or influence in these things. And that haunts us until we release from it, until we are forced into some type of wall. And for those that get that kind of success around 20 to 25, they're almost damned to it, which is almost more dangerous because it's this idea of like, oh, I can be successful or I can do these things. And a lot of us eventually have to come to redefine our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to success. And until I was able to truly get over that stuff, uh, I really, I really kind of like coasted along without that much success i think this is fascinating so what was the defining moment or when did you wake up to success wasn't what you had originally thought it was um and what is success to you now for me uh i i didn't really let go of that relationship to success until kids so i just as much as I knew that this was bullshit and that you got to get over these things and do things for yourself. And you hear that all the time as this advice bullshit of like, you got to be you, man, you got to, mm -hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't make an effect on you. No matter how many times you hear it, you can agree with it. You can believe them, but it, you actually have to change your relationship to yourself. And the thing that actually broke me was kids. Now, one of them obviously was going crazy and then stopping creativity, which was rough. Uh, because I had to rebuild myself. In many ways, like an alcoholic, I had to understand that I have to be careful with my brain. And so then I slowly rebuilt my relationship to creativity over time, uh, and I just took it easy. So I have a relationship of like knowing my limits and calming down when I get kind of ramped up. 
But the thing that actually changed my relationship to success was children. So I, and I think this can happen to people. Um, when you have a child, you have to change your vantage point. And that involves uh, danger and a direct like insult to your ego of living for like someone else and things of that nature. But if you can accept that and almost like pass through that, everything has been so much better. Every single thing has been better since I quote unquote failed with the kids thing. We came to California because my wife didn't want to raise kids in Manhattan. And uh, that was awful. I hated it. I hated, uh, um, you know, uprooting myself. We had just gotten married. Now we have kids. So all this transition stuff and it kind of, everything kind of collapsed. And ever since then, I've been doing things for a totally different set of reasons. And you basically become unstoppable. If you can do things for yourself, and again, this is advice that you will hear and you will agree with, <laughs> but it will, you will not enact. But if you can get to the point where you literally say, fuck everybody, you can't stop me. Because I don't need this. I have other things to live for, which is uh, my children, my family. Like none of this matters as much. And I've been able to bring myself to the outside world much more so. So I'm, I'm like, I'm doing myself more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So to this point, your advice is get institutionalized and have children. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an oversimplification. No, yeah, yeah. Don't get institutionalized. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, You know, both of those things. Number one, take care of yourself. Number two, have something to live for. So it does not have to be kids. It just has to be something that's as important to you as all of this shit. You're a, a purpose. Yeah, something that you define yourself by that is outside of the rooms that you are auditioning for, outside of the rooms where you're trying to express yourself. Because if you are walking in there and defining yourself by what you're doing right now, there is a desperation in you, and all of us know it. Every single human being knows it. We can feel it. We were born with it. We experience it. And if you are up there needing to be liked and needing that um, response from what you're doing right now, it's evident. And if you can be up there and be yourself and not need what you're doing right now, it's also evident, and you have you own your power, and the, the actual content of what you want to present is much cleaner. That goes to stand-up, it goes to improv, it goes especially to auditioning, it goes to almost everything, is you have to center yourself outside of the location where you're doing the work. Does that make sense? It does, but I also want you to elaborate. I talk about, you know, comics doing stand-up for validation versus connection. Right. It seems like there's a parallel there, but how do you simultaneously not care, but care? (laughs) So uh, there's a separation between who you are and what you do. And what you do is the creative act of self. So you're crafting something. It is not out of wood um, and it is not like on any kind of canvas, but it is an outcropping of you. So you must know yourself and you must own yourself. You are not doing the part that is incomplete. You're not trying to complete yourself with the reaction of the people. You are a complete entity that are that is standing in front of other entities and expressing something. Now, if that expression requires that reaction to complete itself, then you're not purely expressing something. You're actually fishing. You're out there trying to collect the completion that you need to be yourself. So you, you need to just work on completing yourself so that you are whole 
and everything that comes out of you, you can put your full passion into. I'm not saying don't care about it. And I'm not saying don't make it personal and don't make it about you, but don't make it um, incomplete because we know it, we see it and we feel it both in both on an acting level in audition rooms. You know the difference when you walk into a room that you're auditioning for something, there is a separation between the work and you. And if you identify the work with you, if you need to be accepted, it'll fuck with your work. It, you'll be performing, you'll be doing a character, but ultimately what you're saying constantly is like me, like me, mm-hmm. you know, and it gets in the way of the actual work where if you can release from that, just focus on what it is you're doing, but it's not just, um, auditioning. It's everything, you know, when someone owns themselves and it's instantaneous. And this is why a lot of the, the fix for what I'm talking about. Most of the advice has to do with like, well, do it for 10 years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The reason they say that is it's a trend. Once you've done it for 10 years, you're so given up on what it is that that this kind of inhabits it. So you can do it for one week as long as you own yourself and don't don't define yourself by your work. You will have that 10-year feel to yourself. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think another theme that you're talking about is you know authenticity and humanity. Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about you know a lot of comics I see or even when I get on stage – Sometimes it's the uh, insecurity or, you know, wanting the, the somehow relying a little bit on the the reaction from the crowd. Yep. But the biggest laughs come when when that's addressed immediately. Um, uh huh. When and you know, there's some of my favorite moments, if not most of them, when I'm watching any stand up is, you know, a, an authentic reaction to something that's happening in the room or a joke fails or someone flubs their words and immediately addresses that that will get a bigger laugh than the joke whatever I had because yep. it's like and having the confidence to do that yeah I mean there isn't um, there isn't an art form that doesn't ultimately at the core of it come down to the moment so now you're talking about the ability for anything to bring you to the present moment and every art form has uh, a dichotomy to it in which there is a distance to the moment and then there is also the moment. So, like, let's say with stand-up, um, you're mat- you have material and you've written material. That material is not in this moment. Your job in performing it is to bring it back into this moment and sometimes literally. But when when you pierce through your prepared material into the moment, you're actually living inside of that and it's engaging and enlightening with improvisation there's so much preparation a lot of times it feels kind of like karate and it's like punch kick you know it has a it has almost like a practiced element to it and different styles of improvisation have even more distance than the moment when improvisation itself has always been designed to be the most moment filled most of the shit that we do in america is is almost layers on layers of preparation instead of people literally existing right now. And so you have to pierce through that preparation beyond the preparation or beyond whatever you're learning to get down to that moment when performing. And when you do, it's still surprising, even in improvisation when Mm -hmm. it's all supposed to be in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, you reminded me, and I met Ptolemy, you. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Different Um, Ptolemy? I did. I met you through Mark Campbell, Mm -hmm. who... um, you are on a team with in New York yeah. who opened the West Side Eclectic, now the West Side Comedy Theater. And 
that was uh, many ways my education in in improv and a lot, most of comedy. But when I first met Mark, his relationship with improv was that, you know, and the, why he was inspired to teach it while he was getting his MBA at UCLA was um, to his fellow students was, you know, we live our lives and he's just the, the metaphor of walking down a street and we're already, uh, you know, we see people up ahead and we're already starting to figure out our interactions with them. Mm-hmm. And there's a homeless person. How am I going to react to giving them money? And oh, there's someone I know or, and improv is the art of, you know, being okay with it's going to ha- what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. And you don't have to prepare for every interaction. Yeah. There's a great deal of fear that obviously that in, that is intrinsic to that. Like just approaching like a homeless person, they're putting putting your armor up or whatever. But we put armor up against the moment in the same way that we put armor up against everything we fear, like heights, snakes, uh, spiders, darkness, anything unknown. And it all leads to death, the ultimate unknown. But to not be prepared to be able to live inside of this moment is actually very threatening. Yeah. And it is the core of most of our fear. And this is why a lot of times the way that improvisation is taught saves people from that fear. The very fear that where the art form came from, in my opinion, is like, oh, don't worry about it. Just have a plan or do this plan or have a, you know what I mean? Like, and that's true for a lot of people. And then when you see someone that can stand on stage, even as a stand-up, even when they have material and you know that they are standing there, that is true power. And you notice it as even as an audience member. It's like, wow, that person has power because they are standing in the arms of fear and are not afraid. And that is a sense of existence. So no matter what form you're doing, there is there's always that element to your performance is how comfortable you are standing inside of that moment. There isn't an art form, there isn't a performance form that doesn't have a relationship to being present and truly like present, like standing there. Because it affects all of us it, it, as a any audience member. So that's like, no matter you, you can work on the comedy, work on all of those things, but just keep that in, in mind in terms of the presentation side of it is being able to stand in stillness that changes your relationship to things, even your own material. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, and I'm struck by you as a human. <laughs> and you always seem to be living presently. It, yeah and is that conscious no man i'm like it's a constant struggle i mean maybe it looks like that but you know like it's a spectrum you're always on a spectrum and some of the reason why i'm aware of this is uh because i've always been trapped in my own mind so i'm very observational so i've been dealing with this i i come at these things by suffering from it so I'm not, I wasn't born having figured these things out. This is something that I struggle with daily. So much so that I have um, practice, practices of being still and allowing, you almost feel the heat coming over you of, is this the moment? And like anytime you, this stuff goes towards anything. Like anytime, anytime you're in a conflict or um, in your own life, like arguing or conversing as we are, there is a protective you want to protect yourself and if you can um observe it it become it's a subconscious thing that you must then make conscious you must hold it from 
the um, uh, kind of innate knee jerking. You must bring it up to the forefront of your mind to understand that, observe it, and then allow it to make a noise, but don't react to it. So it's a long process of like getting to know yourself because you are not going to avoid it. You're never going to get to the place where fear isn't part of you. You can get to the place where you can observe fear instead of react to it. Do you you meditate? I was never able to meditate, ever. Uh, As much as I knew that it was important, Um, especially for like how active, uh, overactive, you know, that thought process is. But um, just last year, like within the last three months, I've been trying it. What kind? I did... um, as a kid, I did. Uh, somebody came to our house and did like guided meditation stuff. That was like in the '80s or whatever, mm. uh, and that was uh, kind of weird. So I guess I had some background in it. But You're in um, Northern California hippie, it was weird. Um, I did uh, transcendental meditation recently at the David Lynch Foundation, which is here in LA, and it's it's also a charity. And so you can do it at a transcendental meditation location. It's the same information. Um, but if you do it there, it also acts as a charity. Mm. So I did it through there, uh, the foundation. Did you ever read his book on meditation? Nope. It's great. I and bet it, it is. I, it, it, look, Transcendental Meditation is fantastic. It's basically um, advanced napping. Uh, you're, it's like stillness. It just resets your brain. It's very functional, very useful. It is not even as hokey or 60s as the word Transcendental Meditation it's very straightforward, very simple. I highly recommend it, especially in the um, kind of performance industry because there are times where you get very tired or worn out or whatever, but this allows you a reset that can be very fast, as short as five minutes, and I've done it on set uh, even since you know the last, whatever, like six months. And it, it kind of like helps refocus your brain or like reset things, clear things out so that you can kind of get more energy. Mm-hmm. Do you try to do it twice a day, like 20 I'm minutes? not good at it. <laughs> so I've, I, I only do it once a day so far. But this is a huge step for me. Like It yeah. took me um, probably seven years of trying to get myself to do any of it. To get up to once a day, I think it's, I think it's really a big step. And what about creativity-wise? Because And to talking about that book, and it's a very quick read um it's just okay uh his you know different thoughts on meditation and how that affects creativity and what creativity is but he uses the analogy of you know going deeper into the ocean um which you actually alluded to in when you were in college of that creativity there's the surface level stuff that we can all tap into but then through meditation we're able to dive deeper into the oceans of our own creativity and and you know, fish for that stuff. Does mm-hmm. that resonate at all? No. <laughs> okay. Only because I'm, I haven't even gotten there yet. Uh, I use it to, uh, for maintenance almost still. Um, so my relationship to my own voice and my own creativity has been stilted for almost 20 years and I can still do things, but I know, I know what I am and I know what I want and I still can't face it. And if that's out of fear, it's like self-preservation. It's rough. Yeah. It is very hard. And, you know, it's something that I have to face eventually, and I'm, like, getting back to it. But those things are tough. Like, you know, when you when you feel afraid of yourself, that's kind of, that's kind of rough. And it's a little bit sad. Um, and I'm working on um, 
uh, I'm, I'm working on reapproaching that side of myself because I have these ideas and it's hard for me to express them. I get it completely. Yeah. Thanks for expressing a lot on this podcast. No, it's, I mean, it's fine. Well, let's, I mean, it's this your is funeral, all, buddy. <laughs> this is all very inspiring. And so you are the, I don't know what the official title is, but you run the Nerdist Improv School. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, and you're still teaching? Director, yeah. Um, how much of this uh, stuff do you impart to students? Um, a, a lot of it. I mean, I obviously am obsessed with this, and I've, uh, one way that I've been able to express these things is through teaching. So it's actually very important to me, and it's really helped me um, get things out. So for me, teaching is kind of a big deal. Uh, and I have almost, um, directly addressed all of these things over time. I've been doing it for probably 15 years to some extent, either like coaching or teaching, um, back in, um, New York. I mean, I started pretty early, but, um, can you talk about your quit very quickly, just that your evolution through improv and UCB and. Yeah, I was at the original um, UCB, and I was doing four shows or five shows a week there. Like back at the original, uh, it was like one sixty one twenty second Street. Is that right? Yes. That there it used to be. A, I was interning there. It used to be a um, strip club, and we would have these men, these Hasidic Jews, that were so used to it being a strip club that they would open the door and walk right past the box office be like no 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 and they walk in and unfortunately the stage was oriented toward the door so you walk through these curtains and everybody just is staring at you and i'm like the level of (laughs) um shame and anger just instantly washed over them and they walked out no words just anger walked straight out walked in walked straight out and it would it would like constantly happen eventually we tried to like stop people like halfway through the hallway that's so bizarre yeah Hasidic Jews go to strip clubs yeah who knew I know I know it was eye-opening um <laughs> I mean it wasn't just Hasidic Jews it was, just, it was a lot of um apparently they don't all talk either like creepy guys we're um, getting around the community yeah so I did that for a while and um and then I started teaching over at the People's Improv Theater when that started up in their original space, um, I've never I've never been a fan of like game theory because uh, it's it's kind of like uh, scene worky. I, I just I, I didn't I didn't really want to teach it, so I moved on. Um, and so I've I've been teaching like these concepts for a long time, even starting at the People's Improv Theater. Came out here, um, started a school, and I, the real like pure abstracted it into acting classes like i'm i just started an acting program and there's two levels now but that is almost directly uh stillness being able to accomplish stillness on stage it's just and i teach that also in the level four that i teach i teach an element of like the acting we kind of start with acting and move forward but um that that's been like my most passionate area of um learning for myself and through teaching is just like, is there a way you can communicate stillness, that ability to stand without fear? That's kind of what I'm obsessed with. And so that's, um, most of the acting program is just a concentrated version of that. 
but meditation as as stillness and and being in the present moment that it's not just you know this idea of sitting with your eyes closed and trying to clear your brain but when you're teaching and when you're in the moment even right now when you're talking passionately about what you think of the world that that is a form of meditation because you mm-hmm. are in that moment so you are achieving the benefits of meditation anytime um, you are clearing that head so even whether it's acting or, or doing stand-up if you're truly doing it and in that moment mm-hmm. and that might be part of the thrill uh, when you get off stage like oh my god i've just eliminated thought for 10 minutes or yeah 10 minutes. you entered the moment i yeah. mean that that's i don't i don't I want to go too far with it uh but that is that's our escape from death when we're truly not thinking about the fact that we're going to die. And again, I attribute a lot of fear to that end result of like, why are we alive and those things. But when you can do a project, I mean, it can even be a small project sometimes because I have kids now, sometimes just drawing or building something out of paper, you feel connected to something. And what it is, it's a release from the fear around you and it's getting inside of a moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And I will say, you seem to be big on meditation. I've always been obsessed with it. And oh, I've, I've that's amazing. It, but um, I wouldn't claim I'm good. And- no, no, no. But uh, see, that this is where I need to get to. Is, and I'm working in the direction. So I'm glad you've brought it up several times. But I have some other thoughts about it, which is the, the dopamine effect. The, it is anxiety release. Uh, we, are all, we all process anxiety. And we have to release it to some extent. And a lot of us do that through... Uh, what's now social media is because you're experiencing anxiety, you go to that to relax yourself. It's to like calm your brain of processing too far in one direction. And it, it releases the chemicals that allow us to process through our day. And so it becomes an addictive relationship. But meditation is a way, a much less destructive way of creating a positive relationship to that. And it, it's amazing. It's the difference between um, drinking, uh, becoming an alcoholic to process your anxiety, which you know a lot of our parents did or some of us do. Sure. Um, or just processing your anxiety, which is the core root of why we're driven to become alcoholics. But there's much much of us are like alcoholics to that dopamine effect of the social media. I, I, yeah, I relate to all those things, including alcohol. And when I am meditating, and, and I said good or bad, and, and just the act of doing it, there, to me, it's when I wake, can wake up and do it before I get into the day. Yep. It's just, at the very least, a reminder to be present in the choices that I'm making. And it doesn't always work 100% of the time, but chances are, when I can cross off meditation off my to-do list for a day, I've been much more present in the choices I'm making throughout that day. It's yeah. the practice for the practice. Yeah. That's what I believe. I'm working on it. I haven't I, I haven't gotten there yet. Like I'm really I'm working. I think I'd like to get like there. Yeah. I'm not anywhere. But I'd like to get to more consistently, at least once a day. But even that three or five minutes, it's like can make a huge it difference. It is it's very different. It's a very different relationship to anxiety, you know, like what's happening. Should we do a meditation right now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just five minutes silence? <laughs> um, no. Okay. I no, because uh, I don't know if I'd make it. 
no, it, that is what it feels like. It's like, oh, but my brain is too active, but it's not. It's like you really can do it. It's like designed for that active brain. This is what I really do like about the transcendental meditation is that um, too many of this meditation processes is like quiet your mind or like all this stuff. But you actually just have to focus. It, it, you'll you just have to go through it. It is a it's a mechanical process. Your mind is a muscle, mm-hmm. just like anything else. And the more you groove the more you strengthen the ability to um, ask for a certain type of thinking, the more it comes. And I really think transcendental meditation like makes that um, um, makes that work, especially introduction to that work possible for very active brains. In my experience, I'm not getting paid by transcendental meditation. David I, Lynch is uh, making money right now. I know, I know, I know. I, I, First charity. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want to uh, say that there there are sites where they just tell you how to do it so you don't have to pay anything. So I, I'm somewhere in between. Like, I'm not trying to make money for anybody. Well, I've done the Google searches for mantras. Yeah. Yeah. I, seemingly, I mean, for this episode, of th- thinking of the theme of gatekeeper. The yeah. gatekeeper is our own mind, man. Hmm. And I said that in a voice because I was like uncomfortable saying it. And now I'm just being authentic and real in the moment. And I'm going to talk like a nebbishy Jew and uh, see what happens. And I'm just going to keep talking. Yeah. yeah I th- are you worried that you tried to make a joke and it wasn't that funny? I mean, I'm not really. <laughs> That's my life. I am not uh, helping you very much. You know, I'm not, I, for some reason, I do not feel like being funny right now. <laughs> no, you've been very uh, real. And yeah, this is a problem. Like for me, uh, yeah, with the especially with these like podcast things, man. If you ask me a question, I just go too far. I've been worried about uh, cursing, and I've been worried. I, I always give advice. Uh, it just it it feels like oh, does anybody care about this? Um, but let I me don't say, know for sure. Let me respond. Unfortunately, again, seriously to something that might have been a question about a gatekeeper. Um, I was recently on a show called Westworld, and ever since then, there are people that are like, oh, I love your work as if they've known my work ever. Like all of these people have known me for about eight weeks. Um, and this idea that we're all waiting for that thing, that thing to hit, you know? And once that success happens, that will clear up these anxieties. It's the thing on the outside that I'm missing. Like I have the inside set up. But when you talk about gatekeeper, like look at everyone that's ever been successful, some at very young ages, some even much later, there is never a point where you you don't go with you. You're always there. Even when you have success, that shit goes with you. There's not going to be a time where you're so over the moon with money or like whatever that these parts of you somehow dissipate. It is a it is literally the way in which you interpret the outside world are the core of these issues. And so you are not only the gatekeeper to your success or away from your success, you are the gatekeeper after your success because you're still there with yourself. So no matter what this, there will never be a time where you, where you can't work on this. And the danger is if you don't get to a certain point that you can release from these things, once success comes or some of these things come it is just empowering the same destructive behavior for two reasons one you have more um energy you know mark campbell Mm -hmm. there's three currencies this is what i get from him now because he does more business things there's money there's time and there's energy so if you if you're just getting more resources 
that same process is going to take advantage of those resources to a larger extent. Number two, there, there will have been a thing in you where you think those, these things should be gone. So there's almost even more pressure on you to be like, why am I still unhappy? Where is that? Where was the, pro- the happiness that I was promised? And it's almost like it deteriorates your sense of self even further. So there, there is no waiting. There is no time period in which it solves itself outside of you. It will always be you. And it will, it, the answer must always come from you. There is no answer in the outside world. I feel like we just solved Gatekeeper. Like this should probably be the final episode because <laughs> I killed your podcast. <laughs> no, I think you you put a bow on it. Like we're always our own gatekeeper. Yes, and it's always been it, and you know, and there won't there you you won't escape it. If you think you're going to be successful enough, if you think you're going to have sex with enough people that satisfies you, you know what I mean. If you think that impulse in you comes from oh, I just don't have enough partners, or my partners aren't uh, are uh, they're not attractive enough. Or on now I'm married. That's not okay. You know what I mean? Like it has none of that. It is all you that is creating that seed of discontent. And it is also you that can be content. That's it. There's nothing else. And you, you always have the choice to be content in any moment. Yeah, it's a, it is a relationship to the outside world. And again, I've never taught anyone, as, as much as I've been doing teaching, as much as I care about it, I have never taught anyone a single thing ever that they didn't take in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, fine, I could be a good teacher. I will teach you nothing that you don't, you don't personally take from the outside world and put inside of you. I have never put anything inside of anyone psychologically. You can only present the information, but every time there is someone out there that take that is able to take something and input it, that is their work. It has nothing to do with me. We all struggle and we all face these things. And if you have the capacity to take information from outside of you and put it inside of you, that is your accomplishment. So fuck your teachers. Stop, gotta stop cursing. <laughs> but screw everybody. Those people don't have the answer. You answered it all for yourself. You took what is necessary and you put it in. You put it in in the place that you can act on. You are your own teacher. You own everything that you were able to give yourself. Well, in the same way you were saying, I mean, every time you hear something earlier, you know, um, it has to do with like gatekeeping. You know, like you protect yourself from positive change, but also you are the one that is responsible for positive change. Any change that you do that is positive is you. So you and I have been talking about meditation. That can just go in and out, I mean, and it will. And sometimes it's almost like that the crow that was trying to drink water out of the, you know, the bottle, and it couldn't get to it, but it continued to put stones into the bottle until the water rose up to the point that it could drink. And every time you hear this is a stone, it's just like, we're just adding one more, this idea of meditation. I think we both think it's great, but someone listening to it would be like, man, okay. and maybe like the 10th time they hear it is like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And maybe this, maybe what we're talking about is the last stone. Whatever it is, it's them deciding to act on it. So you keep yourself from progress, not saying that meditation is progress from, from anything, or you are the answer. You have decided to do that yourself. And it's not the last person that said something. It's not, if anybody gets into meditation from us it's neither of us it's that person that has taken the initiative and you should own the change that you give to yourself mm-hmm. and you should also own the restrictions that you put on yourself and ultimately it's just another oversimplification but really i believe it it's 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 just doing mm-hmm. and 
when you're doing something and you're putting yourself into it, whether it's meditating or acting or gardening or whatever it is, you said playing, um, you know, making art with your, your kids. Um, that's what you need to be doing. And yep. it's that constant work to remind you, we already know the answers. And like you said, we could hear these things over and over and over again. Um, but it's not going to make sense until you're, you're doing it. So just do, yep. and that's it. I mean, we, uh, just for some sense of arc, but all this came from, you know, for me, I only learned, I never went to an acting school. I never did any of, I was, I went to, I did production, but, um, in college it was the two hours every night that I was forced to do it over and over and over again. That, that trains you to know yourself. And having, again, that deadline, knowing that people will see you doing something or hold you accountable for it. Yeah. It's sometimes for me, usually the only thing that will drive me. Yeah. Well, it was good talking to you. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) This has been great. Okay, good. I think we, we hit a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I did not make a lot of jokes and I apologize. This is, I'm, and that's, this is another recurring theme on the podcast and in my life and in improv. So again, it might be a nice little arc thing, but they teach you in UCB 101 and 102 and Mark Campbell and all my improv teachers never go for the joke. Yeah. Because it will uh, end a scene right there. And this episode is a case in point that every time I went for a joke, oh. <laughs> it killed it. No, I mean, I'm, sadly, that's your job. As like host, you're like forced to do that. I, I feel like it I doesn't was have not. to be though. Like th- this, yeah, uh, yeah, this is a very earnest podcast, but I still it's just me being an idiot. No, no, no. I, I, uh, what I'm, I feel the same way as you. I just don't. I feel like I didn't, um, I didn't exactly support the comedy side. I think it's probably like the mood that I'm in. No, we got to embrace where you're at and, yeah. and the mood. And like I said, this is a podcast to make people think and inspire artists. Yeah. To make shit. So. And also my relationship to you is um, often based on like deeper than surface. Like you are one of my favorite people. Oh. And I've said that before. But um, a lot of that is because uh, I treasure relationships that that pierce the, you know, temporary. Yeah. It's not just like, Hey, how's your day or things of that nature. Well, in this town too, and it's become a more recurring theme of late. And, you know, Vanessa, my writing partner, um, who just bought a house in Virginia. Oh, because she has a a two year old and wanted to have a place for them to be at least a month or two of the year. Um, but this, this town, especially being at a comedy club and just being, you know, ensconced in, in Hollywood, it's like every question is, how are you doing? Is, is like, what are you working on? Yeah. What are you working on is a big one. It's interesting. It's as if that's how, what well, that's what like defines you, you know? And I'm live here. I've lived here almost my entire life. So like, it's kind of oh, yeah, par for the right. course, but she reminded me, she's like, you know, like not, when you see people in this, our small town in Virginia right now, where she's living, like that's not even a thing. It's I know. just like, we're just living our lives. Yeah, similar to like facing your fear thing. When anybody asks me like, oh, what do you have lined up or whatever? That's also like a constant thing. Yeah. Like, especially like for acting, it's like, what is your next project? I just always say nothing. I have nothing lined up. I have no, I have no jobs. I have no uh, future. I'm just, you know, 
I've just done the things that you've seen. Um, oftentimes that's true. So I'm just telling the truth, but I, a lot of times like you'll try to find things to cover for it. And I can say that I'm like working on things, but, um, you feel it, you feel the anxiety of, uh, of like facing up to that moment by literally saying nothing. I'm literally just raising my family. That's beautiful. Yeah. So what are you working on? Nothing. <laughs> uh, well, this has been amazing. I have a thing I say at the end of every episode. I feel this is all wrapped up. Yeah. Do you? Do you have anything else you want to say? No, just a series of apologies. You know, but I'm, I've been getting through them. <laughs> Good. Um, work on your craft endlessly. Uh, this is the first podcast recording of, of 2017, by the way. And so it's been a few weeks. But work on your craft endlessly. Andrew, yes. do you remember the other ones? Um, I always forget the second one. Work on your craft endlessly. Always forget the second one. Always forget the second one. I know it ends with and be cool as fuck always. It's, it's work on your craft endlessly something. <laughs> be undeniable. Be undeniable. This is uh, as authentic as it gets. Yeah. I mean, just to, I don't want to be what disparaging or whatever but are they that necessary if you can't even remember them that's exactly what i was thinking like am i even passionate about these things i mean yeah. you're connecting to them anymore right. i absolutely am i believe in them wholeheartedly but um basically um why don't you make up new ones just to see what comes out of you you know that's, that's um what what would come out of you what is it work on your craft endlessly yep what would the second one be if it was new you can go back and fix it but if it was new like work on your craft endlessly what's the second thing you would tell people uh I mean, be cool as fuck always is yeah. what I end with, but that to me is the so overarching. We thing. can start with that. Be cool as fuck always. Yep. Work on your craft endlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't be afraid of something. You know, I think that would be good for you. Don't be afraid of something. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the something is, but well, I mean, that's what this podcast has been about. Yeah. Don't fear anything. Yeah. Uh, come to terms with who you are, and be okay with it. Uh, be uh, have kids. <laughs> don't fuck angry. Um, I don't know. There's like a lot out there. There's so many things. I'm so I'm so like over lists at this point. You know, like I don't know. Damn listicles, Buzzfeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's compartmentalizing. Yeah, but all those things. I think someone can distill down from this this episode a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. Drink smoothies. How was your smoothie? It was good. Or it wasn't even a smoothie. It was a juice. Yeah, it was a juice. Yeah. Kale, cucumber, apple, and some other C. That maybe that'll be the new one. Kale, cucumber, apple, and be cool as fuck as always. <laughs> like it kind of blew it at the end. There's four. There's four there. The ultimate life smoothie. You heard it here first, folks. Well, welcome to 2017. Uh, thank you, Ptolemy, for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This has been. Gatekeeper. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.